No Gray Zone podcast is a frank and honest conversation on topics related to sexual abuse, harassment, child exploitation, and domestic and workplace violence. The opinions are our own, based on years of experience as special victims prosecutors. Any study, book, or product we mention is based on our own review and are not sponsored. Links and titles can be found in the podcast notes. You can also learn more at rightresponseconsulting.com. Listener discretion is advised. I'm just good at caring too much. I'm just good at caring too much. Is it too much to ask that you be all mine? I never was good at sharing. I'm just good at caring. Welcome back. I'm Catherine Marsh, and this is the No Gray Zone podcast. Today, we welcome Jessica Lamb, founder and executive director of Atlanta Redemption, Inc. Jessica is a survivor, advocate, businesswoman, writer, artist, and a public speaker, to name just a few things Jessica excels at. She's been named one of Georgia's top 40 influencers in 2021, as well as being recognized for the Corporate Leadership Award for Social Entrepreneur in 2022 by the Atlanta Business Chronicle. Jessica, it is truly an honor to welcome you to No Gray Zone. Hey, thanks for having me today. I always like to start at the beginning because we truly can't understand how Atlanta Redemption Inc. started without understanding the background. So could you share just a little bit of your story that led you into the nonprofit work, specifically Atlanta Redemption Inc.? So when it comes to Atlanta Redemption Inc., or as I call it, ARI or RE is what a lot of people call it. You can't hear about where we are now without hearing where it came from. So I'm just going to share a little bit about my background and my story before I talk about Atlanta Redemption Inc. or RE. At the age of eight, I was molested by a relative. They were wanting to play doctor and I was molested at my grandmother's house. And around the same time, I started showing a lot of signs of severe anxiety and mental health was very taboo in my house because I grew up in an evangelical church. And so, you know, back then in the nineties, you really didn't talk a lot about mental health, even, even so as recently, I think it's something that is really taken off as being talked about more and more in the last, probably the last decade. But I grew up in an evangelical church and my parents served in ministry roles and I was a pastor's kid. We had this picture perfect family, but there was abuse that was happening that was not physical, but it was a lot of the times verbal or emotional, mentally and spiritually. You know, I can remember getting detention for chewing gum and I had to write a book in the Bible because of my behavior. It really just, I developed this thing of, I was like pastor's bad kid. And I kind of got that label pretty quickly at a young age for just really stupid stuff. When I was in seventh grade, my mom had walked in on a conversation I was having with my teacher. She was coming in for a parent-teacher conference, and I had to stay after. And she heard my teacher say, you're never going to amount to anything. You're a hopeless cause. And she had said this because I had flunked a paper that I had rushed through, and I didn't want to do the assignment. Like I, I was very bored in school. I really wanted to do art and I wanted to write. I had zero interest in a lot of the, you know, the core curriculum. So my mom heard that and she was like, heck no. She pulled me out of school, began homeschooling me. And again, back in the late nineties, homeschool was a lot different than it is 
to what we see today. And so it kind of just spiraled me into more of a depression. And I began self-harming at, at a pretty young age. My mom and dad were like, this is not working. So they put me back in public school in ninth grade. And I was really far behind as academically. And I ended up getting put in like special classes for emotional behavior disorder. So I was in these like classes where I was kind of excluded from other people. And my brother had went off to Bible college and my parents moved a guy in our house that was going through a divorce. He, he worked in our church. He worked with a lot of the children in like this boys group that we had at our church. So my room was in the basement of our house and he had the room that was adjacent from me. And so he began sneaking in my room and sexually abusing me. I was 14. He was 34. So here I am. I have this reputation for being pastor's bad kid. I'm being sexually abused at home by a guy that moves in. And he was like, you've got to be quiet about this. You know, I'll make sure you have cigarettes and I'll make sure you have razors to keep quiet. And I thought, you know what? whatever. You know, I, I was, I was always trying to like get cigarettes from the, up the street at the gas station underage. And so I was like, Hey, I got, you know, something provided for me that was helping me cope with anxiety. And so he made sure I had those things in order to keep quiet. But I ended up telling a friend at school who ended up telling my parents. And when they asked him about it, of course, he's going to lie about it. Right. So I ended up continuing to wear this badge. And I was like, you know what, if I'm going to be told that I'm bad and I'm just this horrible kid, then I'm going to wear it with pride. I'm just going to keep, you know, doing, doing more and going that extra mile of just doing whatever I want to do. But this guy continued to sexually abuse me with my parents, knowing that I had said that he was doing this. And I ended up leaving my house at 16 and my dad was like, you can't be in this house. You're causing problems. Get out. So I left and I dropped out of high school, left, left my parents' house, moved in with my grandmother. My dad was like, Hey, you're going to become a lot of stress for your grandma. You can come back. So like I did this back and forth thing between my mom and dad's house and this in my grandmother's house and my aunt's like I was ping pong and I was really, really displaced. So before I turned 17, my parents told me that I could move back, but I had to get my high school diploma and I had to get a job. Mm-hmm. Well, I couldn't pass the GED because I had zero interest, like I said, in academics and I couldn't get a job because I didn't have a diploma. And so it just became this constant fight. And I started looking in a local newspaper in the wanted ads. And I saw this job that really stood out to me. It was in um, a local paper here in Atlanta. And it said that there was room slash an apartment in order to work in this call center. And I was like, score. I was like, finally, I can move out. I can get a job. I'll have my own place. I will have all of this while all my friends in high school haven't even graduated. I was like, I will show them. You know, I was super excited about it. I thought that I had had the best idea ever. So I started talking to this guy for a while and him and his girlfriend talked to me for about four weeks. They knew that I was struggling. And I remember him telling me that I was perfect for this position and that they would wait as long as I needed, that there was always going to be an opening. And I was like, okay, cool. Like, that sounds awesome. It sounds like, you know, winner, winner. And so I know that one night that I got in a fight with my dad, it was, it was like the last argument I got with him when I was a teenager. And he was like, you really got to go. He's like, do not come back. You've got to go. And I remember getting really, really frantic and I didn't want to ping pong back and forth between my grandmother and my parents' house. And so I called a guy that worked at our church. He was newly single, really cute. He was a producer for a rap group here in Atlanta. 
So I got to hang out in his studio and we like smoked weed all night, riding around in this guy's brand new bins. Like I thought I had it made. I thought, you know what? I don't have to go to this job that I've been talking to. I can hang out with this guy. I, I know him. I trust him. I can be set staying with him. And I stayed with him that night. And the next day he threw $20 on the coffee table and he said, you don't fit my lifestyle. You know, you can't be here. And so here I am. I'm seven. I just turned 17. I have $20 to my name, quarter tank of gas in my car. And I remember feeling completely drained of any hope. I was like, I cannot go home. I cannot call my grandmother. I don't want to be a burden on her. Looking back, I know I could have called her, but at the time I didn't feel like I could, I felt like I couldn't stay, you know, with my boyfriend that I was dating in high school, I couldn't call him. And so I was like, you know what? I really don't have any options. So I called the job that I found in the paper. When I got there, he was extremely direct with his expectations upon meeting me. So after about four weeks of working, I was taken to a tattoo shop in Atlanta and the artist traded some one-on-one time with one of the girls that I was with in exchange for my tattoo. So I had a tattoo that was placed on the back of my left hip. And then I had another one that matched that on my left wrist. There were many moments that I, when I was in exploitation that I could have left, but I really didn't feel like I had options. So I stayed where I was. And during that time, he chipped away more and more of my self-worth. He made lots of comments about my body and how I was overweight and how I needed to work out more, that I was costing him money unless I was a certain size or looked a certain way. My self-esteem completely dwindled and I became very dependent on him for everything. And there was many times that I contemplated suicide. He did threaten me often. He threatened my family often. I was scared at him of him, but at the same time, I felt like there was a weird connection and I felt dependent on him. But there was one night after about six and a half months that I got really fed up and I said, I'm so done with this environment. And I resisted anything that was asked of me or expected of me. And I fought back. Um, I was just very, I'm not doing this. You know, you can kiss my ass kind of attitude. And he was not happy with that at all. And so he tried to take my life that night. And I think that night I fought like I've never fought before. I begged, I promised, I pleaded, I felt like I had to tell him everything that I could to get him to back down. And he finally did. The next day I told him that I had to, I told him, I was like, I need to go to the bathroom because I was in the same room with him. And he said, "Uh, if you try to leave this time, I won't be so generous. And I was like, I'm not going to leave. I love you. You're the best thing that's ever happened to me. I can't live without you. I mean, I just, I really did it up. And what I ended up doing was I ended up going down the staircase and I went to the Salvation Army that was across the street. I tried to call a few people. My calls were not received well. I I tried to call a family member and they were like, what have you gotten into your, into this time? I tried to call my boyfriend and he was like, I'm busy shooting pool with friends. Like it was it didn't matter what I did. I was met with resistance. And so I ended up calling the police as a last option. The police came out and I tried to explain to the officer what had happened. And he had absolutely zero interest in listening to any of it. I was very frantic. I was like, my anxiety was raised. I was extremely upset. And he told me that girls like me did not belong in areas that I was in. And he didn't want to be bothered with the paperwork. So he went and shook hands with my trafficker 
got my keys for me and told me to leave and not to come back to that side of town. I left all my belongings there. I literally left with the clothes that were on my back and my keys in my car. And I fled to boyfriend's house. And when I got there, I tried to tell him everything that had happened and what I had gone through. And he was like, now that you have experience, do you think, you know, you and I could do something? And I was so angry with his response that I left and I went to my grandmother's house and she hid my my car behind her house for months. And I just remember sleeping a lot. And, um, and she, I felt like my grandmother was my biggest advocate and she believed everything I told her and I, I could have told her everything and, and she was there for me and she protected me and she fought for me. I'm so like, I'm getting emotional about it because I'm so close with my grandma and um, she's still alive today. And I'm so thankful to have that because I had nothing. I'm so grateful you had her in your corner. Somebody who just believed you. Yeah, she's, she is my rock. I, I love her so much. It was good to have her. She hit me out for at her house and my dad felt like I was becoming a burden on her because she's older. He was like, you can come home. So I ended up going back home and I did the ping pong thing again. Um, and I started using drugs to cope. I got addicted to anything that would keep me awake. So ecstasy, meth, cocaine, any of those that would keep me awake where I did not have to sleep, I was happy with because I never wanted to sleep. I was afraid to go to sleep. And the guy never came after me. He never even tried to contact me. But in my mind and how I felt was that he it would be at any moment he would show up. And I was I was terrified. So fast forward to 2007, I ended up getting arrested for possession of meth. I did about five years probation. I got first time offenders. So I had my charges dropped, had my record expunged, had all my rights restored. A couple of years later, I ended up going to an anti-trafficking seminar. And, but the way they portrayed trafficking for women, they portrayed them as women that were locked in shipping containers that were taken across country or taped up or chained up or beaten. So I thought nothing of it. I was like, man, that sucks. I would hate to, you know, I couldn't imagine being in that kind of environment or that happening to me. But I reached out from that one seminar. I reached out to an organization that's here in Atlanta called for Sarah and their founder, her name's Casey McClure. She does outreaches and strip clubs and IMB. So illicit massage businesses. And I became really close with Casey and I shared my story with her. And she was like, you know, that's trafficking. Right. And I said, no, it's not. I was like, I wasn't, mm-hmm. I wasn't traffic. That's crazy. I was like, I wasn't in a shipping container. I wasn't kidnapped. I was allowed to leave. Right. Yeah. I was like, I was not in a shipping container. I, I could go if I wanted to. And she's like, mm, no, she was like, you're a survivor of human trafficking. And I was like, no freaking way. Like I couldn't wrap my mind around it. I, I didn't believe her at all. She was like, I would love for you to share your story. Would you want to share whenever you're comfortable. I never wanted to, cause I didn't feel like it fit, you know, the narrative that, that we hear so much about in the media. And, but it wasn't until 2016 when I got my tattoo covered. The one on your left wrist and the one on your hip. Yeah. The one on my hip and the one on my wrist, I got covered in 2016. I had a survivor leader friend that paid for it. It was such a bad experience. 
and the artist was just he was just horrible. And I ended up having to have them recovered and repaired. And the way he treated me, I remember getting this tattoo and thinking, God, I don't ever want to see another survivor have to put up with this type of treatment when they go into a tattoo shop. I was like, surely there are good tattoo artists out there. And I don't want to see another person to go through this part as in their healing journey. So that's when I started Atlanta Redemption Inc. Why was it important for you to have those tattoos that your trafficker put on your wrist and your hip covered or replaced with another piece of art? Well, the one on my hip wasn't seen often. It was always covered with clothes, but whenever I would change my clothes, bathe, when I was married, you know, my husband would see it when we were together. And so like, I felt like, Even when I couldn't see it, I could feel it. Like I knew that it was there. It was always in the back of my mind. And I was constantly thinking about it like, God, and it wasn't even a good tattoo. You know, like it it was, I just felt like it was constantly tying me to this person and these group of people. And even though I had gotten clean from drugs and I had gone through trauma healing, I'd gone through programs, I had done all of it. I still felt like I was still tied by having this on my body and I wanted it off so bad. And the one on my wrist, I mean, everybody could see it and they'd be like, what is that? And it was so small. They'd be like, they'd call me stickers that, cause I didn't have a lot of tattoos back then. Mm-hmm. So I just felt like I was always having to explain what this tattoo was. And I got so tired of having to explain it to people or having to lie about it. So I didn't have to tell people, especially when I wasn't ready to share my story. So it was very important for me to have those covered up. So walk us through the goals and purpose of ARI. So at ARI, we provide tattoo cover-ups and removals to survivors of exploitation, self-harm, people who've struggled with addiction, or that have been in former gang activity. Um, So we provide those cover-ups or their removals, and we provide the scholarships for them to be able to do it at no cost to them, unless they want to put something towards their cover-up or removal. So we offer this service nationally, but here locally, we have... Um, we have a trauma-informed counselor that works on our team, as well as an educational director who provides diplomas for people that have not been able to complete their high school diploma. And then we also train in iconology, which is the study of imagery and symbolism um, and the history behind it on a social and political level. So um, we train on what to look for, what a tattoo from, from exploitation may look like, and you know it varies by region. So we talk about those different things. In many ways, ARI helps to cover up or change what a survivor, be it a survivor of trafficking, self-harm, gang violence, has to look at or be reminded of every day. As you said, you can get clean, you can have therapy, you can have a job and a family, but you still have this reminder. Yeah. So what led you to deciding on tattoos as the solution to be able to cover up or replace this sign of past trauma with a new work of art or sign of hope? Well, we do the we do the tattoos and the removal. So we offer both as a service, but why I decided on the tattoos is because the tattoos and scars are a piece of human trafficking and mental health that does not get enough of discussion. So people at trainings that are doing these awareness events, they might give it a brief mention in a bullet point, 
but they quickly move on to the next part of their, their conversation. Not understanding the significance of a cover-up from the tattoo of exploitation, your lee or a scar from self-harm or any of those things, you're leaving out such a big piece of somebody's healing journey that has to be made, has to be brought to the front and talked about. The tattoos and scars are something that you have to look at every single day. So, you know, even if you can cover it, like I said about myself, even if you can cover it with clothing and it's not being seen in the public eye, or you're not having to explain it to somebody you can still see it yourself or, you know, you still see it or, you know, just feel like it's there. But I've had people that choose to do the, the removals because when you do a cover up, you're basically camouflaging the former tattoo. And so when you do a removal, you're completely taking it off. So it's completely broken down and, and off your body. So we have people that do choose that over a cover up, but yeah, it can be a huge hindrance in people's lives. And so that's why I talk about tattoos so much and I'm so adamant about bringing it to the conversation. And it's not something rare that, you know, is something odd that doesn't fit. It very much fits in the conversation and it is very much, it's not like a, a unique thing to talk about. It's like I said, it's, it should be part of the conversation and it needs to be. And so that's why I'm so passionate about talking about it. Absolutely. Why is it so important to you to emphasize the iconology and the history of tattoos? Tattoos go back so far. People think that it is something that's, you know, occurred in the last 70 something years, but I have traced tattoos back to the Egyptian era. And I talk about it in my trainings about where the tattoos began and where the branding started and where people were branded you know, where people were branding humans and why that came up. And so it's important to see the roots of where something began in order to find out how to go from there. So that is what we talk about when we talk about iconology and the root of where it came from. What is the impact that you have personally seen ARI have on survivors and your community? Since we began ARI in 2017, we've been able to assist over 300 people with their tattoo removals or their, or their tattoo cover-ups. That might not seem like some big astronomical number, but for one person, it made a difference. It was a huge deal for them. And so a lot of these people that we get to encounter, they become our friends. They, they end up training alongside of me oftentimes here locally. They end up going to appointments with their survivors. I had a young lady, she's absolutely incredible, doing amazing things in her life. And she said that when she got her cover up, that she no longer saw the girl that she saw in the hotel mirrors. I had another young lady that said that she went through a program and she got clean and she was employed and she did everything to get back on track and to make the right steps. But she felt like that tattoo kind of just psychologically kept her linked to her trafficker. And so when we were able to cover up, it gave her that final step in her healing. We've had a young man who had tattoos removed from his face and his hands from a gang activity. And he said that when he did that, he had more opportunities for employment as opposed to being declined for jobs and getting caught up in recidivism where he's in and out of the prison system because he can't find employment or livable wage opportunities. These steps are so important. And we have so many stories about how this has made a difference in people's lives, but I don't think there's enough time in this podcast today or 
you know, just to go over them all, but I could talk about this for days about why this is so important and why and how this has affected people's lives and their recovery. How has the tattooing community responded to ARI's mission? The tattoo community is amazing. I cannot talk enough about how incredible the tattoo industry is. I think that over the years they've had bad raps because of what people think the tattoo industry is like, but these people are literally angels. They're the most phenomenal people I've ever gotten to work with. And each month we have more shops coming on board from across the state. I've even had to turn away some shops because we have so many and I'm like, you can still make a difference in your community. We can, you know, we can still get you trauma informed. We can still get you safe place trained, but you know, we don't have enough people coming through to be able to to provide, you know, everybody with assistance at each shop, but yeah, they all want to get involved. They want to become safe place certified. They are interested in, you know, learning about the iconology and what to look for. They put signs up in their shop that they will decline these types of tattoos. They're just have become so involved in wanting to make a difference. And a lot of them were already doing things in their community. Like we have a lot that do a lot of book back drives, we have a lot that do homeless outreach. You know, Atlanta is such a huge area to, to do things, just like any city. Just to see them step up and to take part of ARI on this platform and what we do is really awesome. They are extremely safe to work with. I'm, I'm even able to bring my kids in their shops. A lot of them are kid-friendly. My kids love going into the tattoo shops with mommy. They think it's so much fun. They're just people like you and me, they have a heart for the community and they want to make a difference. And I literally see them as, you know, angels. I love the tattoo community. I think they're incredible. Okay. But you snuck a little new information in there that I want to talk about. Did I? Did I? (laughs) Yes. Because you snuck in some information about safe places and being safe site trained. And I know this is something that you've worked really hard at to bring the national safe sites to Georgia. So can you take just a little bit of time to explain what that means? So Safe Place is a national organization. If you Google them, you can get all kinds of information about them. You'll see their signs. They're big yellow signs. There's a a common misconception that's where you drop your baby off if you don't want to keep your child. That's not what a safe place is. It's actually for youth that could be in danger. So our shops became safe place site trained. The first one in Georgia was Ironclad Inc. And they're based in Covington. And they went through a background check and they went through the safe place training where a safe place agent came in, did the training with the, with all the shop artists And then they became safe place certified. So if there's somebody that is in a bad situation, or it could just be a teenager that went out one night with their friends and people were having too much to drink and they didn't want to get in a car with a drunk driver. So they were like, I'm not getting in the car with you. I'm walking home or whatever. And they see that sign. They know they're trained about it in school or in YMCA's. You can go to these places and find safety. So the artist will bring the person into the shop put them in the break room, get them something to drink, get them a snack, call an advocate, which is they leave all their numbers there and a local shelter will come and assess the situation. The shops do not call the police. They call the youth advocate because if you tell a child that they have to call the police, a lot of times they will freak out and they'll think they're going to get in trouble or they'll get scared. So they call as long as nobody is in physical danger, obviously you have to assess that yourself, but they will call the youth hotline and the youth hotline will come out and, and see how they can help. And so 
We've trained um, shops in West Georgia, uh, North Atlanta, South Georgia. We're working in Columbus, Georgia soon to become safe place trained. So we're seeing more and more shops interested in getting that training. I love how you have worked with the tattooing community, not just on cover-ups, but on everything from training on trafficking to posting tattoos that the artist won't do to trauma-informed responses, safe places so at-risk youth have a place to go. As you've said, it's not the common perception that many people have of a tattoo shop, but truly these artists are going the extra mile to serve their communities and help survivors. That being said, how can a survivor reach out to Atlanta Redemption, Inc.? We get a lot of our referrals through community partnerships, but if they don't go through a program, which a lot of people do not, they can go to atlantaredemptioninc.com. And as soon as you hit the homepage, there's an apply button. And so there's an application on there to apply for a cover-up or a removal. And you have said that this service can be at no cost to a survivor. Unless they want to put something towards it. We do have on our application, it's not required, but do you want to put something towards your cover-up or removal? And But yes, typically it's at no cost to survivors. But the reason I brought in that, that other part is because we have people that, it might be a guy that's coming out of the prison system and he might have a hate-related tattoo or gang-related tattoo. And he's like, you know, I'm working a full-time job and I, I can't exactly pay for the tattoo. And I know that you guys are offering it through a scholarship, but I want to put something or pay it forward to somebody else's cover. And so they'll donate something. It could be something as much as $10. You know, it just makes them feel like they're putting what I call skin in the game. And so we have that option, but it's not required. You are obviously based in Atlanta and working with shops throughout Georgia. But how many different states is Atlanta Redemption, Inc. providing services through? I don't have that number off the top of my head, but I can name the states. All right. So we are working in Kentucky. We have a shop in Texas. We have a couple of shops in Texas. We have a shop in Maine, California, Alabama, Tennessee, South Carolina, Florida. And then we have one in New York, and then we have a couple of others, but we have several that are across the country. That is amazing. But how can regular people help support ARI? I believe in your mission. I know so many people believe in this mission. So how can just a regular person say, I want to help Atlanta Redemption Inc.? So there's many ways that you can support ARI and none of them are all financially. Of course, funding is needed. And so they can donate on our website, but we also, we're expanding our board of directors. We're expanding our advisory team. We are trying to grow on that aspect. We like to take survivors after they get their tattoo done. I don't want to be like, okay, have a nice day. Bye. You know, sometimes I'll go and have lunch with them or we'll grab something beforehand. um, Or I go out and grab them a cup of coffee. So like Usually around the shops, there's Dunkin' Donuts, Starbucks, and Chick-fil-A's. Like 99.9% of the time, they're going to be there. So if people want to donate gift cards so I can take them over there to do that, that's an option. And then maybe they have a skill they, they they could donate. Maybe they're really good at writing newsletters through MailChimp. I... I'm like, I've really been slacking on doing newsletters, but you know, maybe they can donate their time to do that or donate their time and, 
you know, serve on our scholarship committee that can be done through Zoom too. And we meet every month and go over applications. So there's so many ways that people can volunteer. If they're based in Georgia, they can volunteer, go to an appointment with a survivor. There was a day that I had six appointments happening at one time and they all wanted me there. There's only one of you. (laughs) I could not. There was, yeah, there's one of me and six of them. There was no way that I could be at six appointments. And I literally tried. I I drove all around this area going to people's appointments. It was crazy. Having people say, hey, I want to be a part of the team and I want to be able to go to appointment with a survivor if they're in my area. Like we need people to step up there too. All those things are are needed. And does somebody who wants to get involved just reach out the Atlanta Redemption Inc. website? If they're interested in donating time, talent, or treasure? Uh, Yes, ma'am. There's a contact page on there, or they can contact us directly. And our hotline number is 678-926-9946. All right. I know you've already told us that there's so much ARI is doing, right? So you've got the actual application process for the tattoo removals and cover-ups. You work with tattoo shops for safe place training. You do training yourself. You work with task force. You get all of this out there. Quite frankly, I don't know how you do it all. I don't either. (laughs) (laughs) But, But if money was no object, time was no object, what are your next goals? What's your, what's your hope for ARI for the future? Honestly, just continuing to do what we do in, but go a little bigger. I would love to grow our network of artists um, in other states. I think that would be extremely helpful. And that's a goal of mine. Training more law enforcement and victim advocates and communities and the work that we do. The next thing to going into the tattoo shops, I love sharing the story of ARI and training people on what we do and and the context behind it. And so opportunities to, to speak and to share our mission um, anywhere in this country, I'm grateful for, and, you know, helping people learn to break the stigma of self-harm and exploitation and addiction. So just continuing to nurture that and grow that is, you know, what's going on with ARI. I love that. And I would love to see ARI in every single community in this country. I I think you're right. We don't talk enough about tattoos or self-harming scars. And it can sound simplistic to say, oh, they just need a cover-up or a removal, but it's not simplistic. It is holistic. And it can make such a difference to a person. So if we have people in the art community who are in this tattoo industry listening and they want to bring ARI to their community, how can an artist reach out and get involved? That is on the website as well. If you go to Atlanta Redemption Inc., that application to be a provider, whether it be a mental health provider, um, a tattoo artist or tattoo removal specialist, we have an application under one of the tabs that says apply and it says providers application and they can apply on there. We do screen everyone that we work with. We don't just work with anybody. They have to go through a background check. So we are looking to make sure that there are no violent or sex crimes on your background. Now we know that a lot of people that work in the tattoo industry, we know that they have a story. I don't think there's one artist that I've met that does not have a past like us all. I understand if there's a few things that might be on there, but what we're mainly looking for is sex crimes and violent crimes. But yeah, they can apply on the website. 
That is all the time we have for today. I encourage everyone to go to ARI on social media at the Atlanta Redemption Inc. on Facebook and Instagram. And you can learn more about ARI or support their mission at atlantaredemptioninc.com. I encourage everyone to go to their website and find a way that you can help support this important mission. And we will have the links to the social media, to the webpage, and to the hotline number that Jessica gave all in the podcast notes. Jessica, I cannot thank you enough for joining us today and sharing your message. But before we sign off, I'm going to turn the mic over to you for any final thoughts. I think the last thing I would like to add to this interview is that make sure you're really paying attention to the organizations that you're partnering with. Do your research, support survivor-led organizations. We're a lot of times not looked at or the smaller organizations are often overlooked and we're the ones that really need your support. I feel like you can be anti-trafficking, but also anti-survivor. And I think it's time that people wake up and realize that survivors, that we have a place at the table and that we have a voice and we want to be heard. And when you give us that opportunity, it really shows that you're in our corner and you're not just talking the talk, but you're also walking it out as well. So I just want to encourage people to, to support survivor leaders and, and share, you know, share the things that we say and see value in our voice. I think that's the last thing I'd love to end on. 100%. Thank you again, Jessica, for joining us and sharing the mission of Atlanta Redemption, Inc. As always, if you like what you hear, please subscribe. You can find us on social media at No Gray Zone RRC on Instagram or Twitter and No Gray Zone on Facebook. There are no excuses when it comes to trafficking or not having the right response when it comes to being part of a survivor-led conversation. I'm just good at caring too much. I'm just good at caring too much.